0: It has been a big week in policy news. The kind of stuff that may not make for flashy headlines, but is crucial to how you live your life. And right now, I mean taxes and regulation of the Internet. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. As for net neutrality, we'll get to that in a bit with my colleague Molly Wood's interview with the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. On taxes, well, it's a bit of a waiting game. The House and Senate have agreed mostly on how to reconcile their two tax bills. Right now, that means a lowered corporate tax rate and a lowered income tax rate on the top earning bracket. Also, agreement on expanding the standard deduction and some type of family credit. Last week on this show, we had three tax experts on to answer your questions, and you can listen to that on our website, marketplace.org, and we'll keep updating our tax coverage as we learn more. But we're going to start in a slightly different place this week. This show is committed to covering the extraordinary damage caused by natural disasters this year. And there's a cost that is sometimes overlooked after a wildfire, a hurricane, or a shooting like Sandy Hook, which left 20 children dead five years ago this week. I'm talking about mental health and the sometimes long and invisible recovery that takes place after a traumatic event. That's where people like psychologist James Halpern step in. He was a first responder to 9-11 and Sandy Hook. He's also a professor at the Institute for Disaster Mental Health at SUNY New Paltz. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You know, we are reflecting on the five-year anniversary of the Sandy Hook shooting. Uh, That's something you responded to. Can you walk us through what happens as a mental health first responder? You know, in that case, what would you do?
1: Um, I was with families on the second day of the event. There was considerable fear and considerable chaos. We tried to provide some calm and safety, but they also asked us questions like, how could this have happened to me? How could this have happened to my wonderful child? And those are not real questions for us counselors. Those are cries or laments. And what we can do is offer kindness and compassion and support. But some of the questions they asked, which had to do with uh, how they supported their other children, were real questions about whether or not the kids uh, could watch these events on TV And the answer is no. Whether or not it was good for those young children to be interviewed by the press, answer is no. So some combination of um, what might be considered counseling, crisis counseling, and compassion and support.
0: What sort of disasters have you responded to and do people like you respond to? (laughs)
1: sorry I'm laughing but yeah I mean disasters are so common and getting more common it seems you know the United States people don't appreciate has uh, the most extreme weather in the world so in addition to the kind of floods and fires that are most typical we have a hurricane season we have a tornado season we have a wildfire season that seems to be expanding of course we've got earthquakes, explosions transportation accidents, plane crashes, epidemics, anything that uh, involves considerable human suffering beyond a person.
0: Listening to the breadth of what you're talking about, what does it cost to provide mental health care for so many people in such a variety of situations? And who pays for that?
1: In the early stages of disaster, crisis counseling is typically free. There are 5,000 mental health professionals uh, deployed around the country by the Red Cross, and these are psychologists, social workers, mental health counselors who give up their time and energy to provide that kind of pro bono service. There's also county, state, federal workers who similarly can be at shelters or family assistance centers. Now, over time, some significant minority can develop long-term symptoms, and those folks are treated uh, by professionals uh, with health care, Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, and depending on the nature of the disaster, it can be supported by uh, federal government. For instance, if the disaster was a crime like the Las Vegas shooting or 9-11, then there is support from crime victim services for long-term care.
0: You know, I'm thinking about Puerto Rico. I just came back from uh, a trip reporting on the island, and that is a place with significant devastation. I would imagine that the kinds of mental health services required over time change dramatically as we move, you know, farther out from the event
1: itself. Most folks uh, experience significant but transient symptoms, they're okay and don't need that long-term help. On the other hand, there's some considerable research from the Gulf oil spill where it leads to long-term economic dislocation, job loss, you see significant depression that needs to be uh, addressed.
0: There is a study from the National Institute of Mental Health that says it would have cost about $12.5 billion to provide what they call comprehensive mental health care for 24 months to the people affected by Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Make the economic argument for me, cost-benefit analysis of why that money is worth spending on
1: mental health. These are disaster survivors who certainly bear no blame for being in the middle of these kinds of events. They are suffering, there is job loss, and those treatments work. Uh, we can reduce, then, long-term problems in substance abuse and in uh, family violence and family conflict and individual suffering. There's an enormous benefit that we get when people are functioning effectively.
0: Do you think as a country we have made any uh, collective strides in understanding that mental health is something worth spending money on?
1: I think there is much less stigma now. It can be a struggle to find resources to cover those invisible wounds. I think easier probably to find resources for injuries and illnesses than for those invisible scars.
0: Is it hard to find the people who need help? After all, a disaster can scatter survivors all over the place.
1: Yes. uh, I, I think that we could do better at uh, providing more comprehensive screening, which would not be very uh, costly. And there are, in fact, checklists where we can identify folks who are likely to have serious mental health problems.
0: What's the impact on the people who do this work? I would imagine this is not easy.
1: Uh, There are, of course, the obvious uh, physical hazards. But for all responders, including mental health counselors, there's Listening to stories of trauma repeatedly, which can result in compassion fatigue or burnout or vicarious trauma that you can begin to feel traumatized yourself just by hearing those stories secondhand. And again, I think that that puts all responders at risk and why it's so important for all of those responders and all of us as counselors to have very careful self-care plans.
0: James Halpern, professor at SUNY New Paltz, thank you so much. Thank you. As a nonprofit news organization, Marketplace is on a mission that goes beyond what we do each day, to increase economic intelligence across the country. It's important work that we're already doing, and right now would be a great time for you to help. When you donate to support Marketplace today, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by our friends at the Candida Fund, giving not only supports independent reporting and journalism that you can trust. Your support helps us grow and get better. So don't miss out on this chance to make your donation go twice as far. Give today at Marketplace.org. And thank you. And now to the big story about the Internet. On Thursday, the FCC rolled back what's known as net neutrality rules. In short, the Obama-era regulations designed to prevent Internet service providers like Verizon or Comcast from favoring certain content by charging different rates for it or slowing down data. Not everyone's happy about this change in net neutrality rules, and indeed some are seeking legal action. Marketplace tech's Molly Wood spoke with FCC Chairman Ajit Pai shortly before the vote. Here's what he says the rollback will mean for consumers.
2: I think
3: it means better, faster, cheaper internet access. If you talk to smaller providers in particular, and I've spoken to many of them from Minnesota to Montana over the past week, they have said that these heavy-handed regulations stand in the way of them building a business case for deploying internet infrastructure, especially in rural and low-income urban areas. And so I think for those consumers who want better access to the internet and more competition, these rules promise a brighter future.
0: A brighter future, but what about the practicalities of building new internet service networks?
3: If you look at a lot of the initiatives we've engaged in over the past year in terms of directing federal subsidies to unserved areas, to modernizing our rules to get consumers uh, from copper to fiber, those are initiatives that are actively underway. And I would say in the coming years, we are going to see massive investments in infrastructure, not just as a result of this, these Internet regulations being removed, but because of those initiatives. And over time, consumers will see the bang for the buck uh, when it comes to broadband deployment.
0: One of the concerns of those in favor of net neutrality is whether internet service providers can adequately regulate themselves. And as Molly adds,
4: there has since since 1996 been a lot of consolidation of internet service providers buying content companies. Why do you trust internet service providers to deliver content at fair prices to all people when
3: there is an inherent interest? Two different points on that. Number one, We don't trust any particular company or sector of the industry to regulate itself. And that is precisely why, under my plan, we require very robust transparency that Internet service providers have to disclose the particulars of their business practices and service offerings and the like. That's also why we empower the Federal Trade Commission to take targeted action against any company, any company that engages in any competitive conduct or engages in an unfair or deceptive trade practice, point number one. Point number two, it's also amusing to to hear this criticism from those who in the previous administration okayed over a quarter trillion dollars of consolidation, including among companies that sought to combine network operations and content. And so I think if that was the real concern that they had, they should have spoken up over the previous eight years.
0: That was FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. He spoke with my colleague, Marketplace tech host Molly Wood. We'll hear more from her later as she breaks down what you need to know about Bitcoin. And you can listen to a much longer version of the interview on our website, marketplace.org. It's great. You should. And if you listen to Marketplace via podcast, subscribe to Tech and Weekend, wherever good podcasts are found. Of numbers on this show. They are the backbone of what we do at Marketplace. So it makes sense for us to take a look at the news by the numbers. With Marketplace's Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Tony, kick it off. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is point
5: 0.8. That's the percentage U.S. retail sales rose in November, according to a new report this week from the Department of Commerce. It's for the reasons you'd think shopping and all that.
6: One interesting finding, sales at gardening and construction stores were up 1.2% after dipping in October.
5: So does that mean you're going to give me a big bag of mulch for Christmas this year? Yep. Uh, I didn't get you any mulch. 20. That's the number of major retailers who filed for bankruptcy this year.
6: Charming Charlie, the jewelry store, announced this week that it would file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It joins the likes of Payless Shoes, Wet Seal, and Toys R Us. They all filed for bankruptcy in 2017.
5: But before we start blaming Amazon too much, we should note that Charming Charlie did pretty decent business online. Their issue was they tried to expand into brick-and-mortar stores. $9.315 quintillion dollars. Star Wars The Last Jedi comes out this weekend, so you know we had to do the numbers. That's about how much it would cost the First Order to build Starkiller Base from The Force Awakens.
6: At least according to Washington University assistant professor Zachary Feinstein.
5: He used a lot of financial modeling from his day job to calculate the price tag, and he did the same for the Death Star, which he says would have cost about $193 quintillion.
6: So that's like, what, 5% of the cost of the Death Star? The First Order got a deal.
5: Yeah, and it's like a fraction of what The Last Jedi is going to make this weekend.
0: It's December, and yes, of course, that can mean lovely celebrations with your family, and sometimes at work. Which, when you factor in gift-giving and holiday parties, there is an entire universe of etiquette involved. Which is why we turn to our regular guest, Alison Green, who runs the blog Ask a Manager, to answer all your questions about how to navigate this stuff. Hi, Alison. Hi there. All right, our first question comes to us from listener Lauren Arnold in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And uh, let's let's play that clip because we've got it on tape.
6: Is it okay to give my manager and her manager a present for the holidays? What about a
0: holiday card? Hmm, I guess we call this giving up, gifting up. I hate the word gift as a verb, but anyway, Allison, what's the etiquette here? So etiquette
7: says no on the gift. Hmm. The etiquette rule is supposed to be that at work gifts should flow downward, not upward, meaning that your manager can give a gift to you, but you should not give a gift upward. And the reason is the power dynamics in the relationship, because otherwise people may feel pressured to buy things for the person who signs their paychecks. And it's not okay for managers to benefit from their positions in that way. That said, a lot of people do ignore this rule, and if you're in an office where everyone else is giving gifts to the boss, it can feel kind of awkward to be the only one who doesn't. Yeah. So it's not a cardinal sin to do it in that case if you want to, but if you don't see others doing it, I would resist the urge, since your boss might feel awkward about it too, Um, but a card is great. You can stick to a card or maybe bring in some baked goods. Food is always pretty safe to bring in, especially if you're bringing it for your whole team to share.
0: I want to stick with the card thing, actually, because we got a question about greeting card etiquette, and I want to read that one to you. Megan Feth wrote us saying, I'm a person that sends over 250 holiday cards a year. Our family is constantly moving with my spouse's job, military family. And this is a way that my present and past co-workers as well as friends and family can keep in touch. Should I ask my office manager for a list of home addresses for my coworkers for the cards to be mailed? Should I personally ask the coworker for the address? Or should I just leave the cards on their desk? Our office is made up of 25 employees. I'll let you know that when it comes to mailing things, I'm a bit of an old soul, so correct mailing etiquette is huge for me. Okay, so clearly Megan is someone who really cares about a holiday cards and it's very important to her. Um, how would you handle this? I would
7: stick to leaving the cards on people's desks, because not everyone will feel comfortable giving out their home addresses, let alone, I think, having the office manager give it out on their behalf. And really, this is more of a work thing than a social thing, even though it feels kind of social. So it's okay to stick to passing them out at work rather than sending them in the mail. That said, since Megan moves around a lot and she mentioned she likes to send them to former coworkers to stay in touch, certainly when she leaves that job, she can ask people one-on-one if they would be up for sharing an address so she can stay in touch. And and then they have the choice to opt out.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we did get a comment from someone who I think heard uh, a a teaser trailer for this segment and said, oh, my God, I would be so weirded out if my office manager gave out my home address. So, you you know, people think of their offices in so many different ways. And clearly I could see that being something that, that kind of freaked somebody out a bit.
7: Yeah, and you've got this really easy way right there to distribute cards at work by doing it in person or leaving them on people's chairs, and that's really the way to go.
0: I want to go back to gifts for a moment. We got a bunch of different questions about what to do if somebody unexpectedly gives you a present. You have that moment of, like, uh, thank you. And maybe it's someone you don't even know very well. How do you deal with this? Yeah, that can feel
7: really awkward. I don't think it needs to. It really is okay to just give a sincere thank you. I think at work there's a divide between the gift givers and the non-gift givers. And this is a context where most people aren't terribly upset if their gift isn't reciprocated, especially since gifts at work tend to be small ones. It's usually the person receiving it who feels weird about it. If it'll make you feel more comfortable, it's, it's pretty easy to follow up with something small like a card or a gift card for the local coffee shop or cookies. You don't have to do that. But if it's going to bug you, that's a good way to go. Um, and again, there's an exception here. If the gift came from your boss, you can accept a gift from your boss with, with no guilt about not reciprocating.
0: Let's move on to holiday parties, which is an incredibly fraught topic for, for so many reasons. But I want to handle some of those sort of banal ones first. Um, let's say you are not that into holiday parties, you know, work is work, it is separate from celebrating for you, but you work in an office where people are really into it, how, how, how do you handle this, how do you survive it?
7: I hear from so many people at this time of year who really don't want to attend their, their office holiday parties, I think this one <laughs> is really common. Um, attending is a, is often a good career move. The thing that can help, if you're really dreading it, is to realize that you can just stay for a short while. You know, go, be seen by your boss and any other key players, and then duck out early. You'll get the points for showing up, but you can be home and in your pajamas before the event is even over if you want to, which is what I would want to do. And, you know, it's a couple hours, one night a year. Um, And sometimes people end up enjoying themselves more than they think they will. I, I know that I've gotten to office holiday parties telling myself, I'm going to leave after an hour and and then ended up staying longer because it did turn out to be kind of fun. So
0: you never know. Uh, what about the flip side? You you recently wrote about this, you know, someone who is really into parties, but bleh, the uh, office party is really awful.
7: <laughs> yes. Some offices just aren't into to holiday parties. You can always suggest something low key, you know, a, a potluck during the work day. And maybe people will be into that. But I think if, if you are a socializer who finds yourself in an office of people who aren't, in some ways you're getting to experience being in the minority that introverts themselves are usually in, in most offices. Mm -hmm. And and that can be an interesting shift in perspective.
8: We
0: are obviously in this massive moment of reevaluating work, but particularly for women, but for everyone really. And holiday parties are kind of right in the middle of that. There've been these high profile examples of companies saying, uh, you know, you can have a two drink ticket or there won't be any alcohol or the guidelines will be, you know, very strict. Um, this is a, a a real thicket. What do you think are maybe some sort of mental guidelines for people to keep in mind when they're going to one of these parties? Or if you're the boss, you know, for, for planning and, and throwing one? Yeah, I think...
7: I would stick to one drink, two at the most. You know,
0: alcohol lowers your
7: inhibitions and you don't want to lower your inhibitions at a work event. We have inhibitions around our coworkers for good reason. Um, And I think too, if you brought a date, make sure that they know that this is a work event, not a social one, and that neither of you should be drinking very much. You don't want to have to deal with a drunk date or have to apologize for your or their behavior at work the next day. On the boss side of it, I think make sure that you're not making the event really focus around alcohol. Traditionally, a lot of companies have thrown these very alcohol-soaked events and then, surprise, there's problems. Uh, right. so, so I think, you know, make it focus around food or, or socializing or games or something where drinking isn't the, the main attraction.
0: Is it necessary to have sort of a conversation about this stuff beforehand or send the email out to the company? or or is that um, treating your colleagues like children?
7: I think it depends on what you know about the people who work for you. Um, You know, if if there've never been any problems and you know that the people who work there are conscientious and responsible, it's a risk, I think, but it's probably a a pretty educated risk to figure that you're going to trust people to, to behave like adults and to keep an eye on what's going on at the party. And if you see problems, to be forthright about intervening and dealing with them. On the other hand, if you know that you work with people who overdo it at happy hours and if there's been problems in the past, it's worth addressing it up front.
0: Allison Green runs the website Ask a Manager, which handles all your work-related questions. You can check out her website at askamanager.org. Thanks so much. Thank you. Between 1999 and 2015, 300,000 people in the U.S. died of overdoses involving opioids, including OxyContin. But how do we get here? Our colleagues from Marketplace's documentary podcast, The Uncertain Hour, wanted to know. So for eight months, they investigated interactions between the Food and Drug Administration and Purdue Pharma, the company behind OxyContin. And the importance of the original package insert for the prescription painkiller yeah, that little paper that comes inside the box. The FDA approved the insert language back in 1995, and it includes a sentence about abuse and addiction. As Marketplace's Caitlin Ash explains, The sentence was
9: delayed absorption as provided by OxyContin tablets is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. In plain English, it's basically just saying that because OxyContin is supposed to enter your system continuously over many hours rather than all at once, like immediate release opioids, because of that time release mechanism, it's believed that people will be less likely to abuse OxyContin, meaning to take it to get high rather than
0: to treat pain or to sell it on the street, that kind of thing. We know now that OxyContin turned out to be highly abusable. And that particular sentence about abuse? We know from depositions
9: that Purdue did not do any clinical studies to test OxyContin's abuse potential.
0: You know, studies that would have backed that sentence up. That sentence was removed from the insert in 2001. But by then, you could argue it was too late. So that sentence
9: really became a central part of the marketing campaign for OxyContin. And by the early 2000s, OxyContin was seemingly everywhere in certain towns in Appalachia and rural Maine. And according to the FDA, by 2003, 2.8 million people
0: had admitted to abusing OxyContin. Both the FDA and Purdue declined interview requests for the Uncertain Hours investigation. They released statements, which you can read at Marketplace.org. But the availability of opioids and the marketing behind them helped get them to a lot of people. People like Joey Ballard, a man who Caitlin Nash spoke to for the latest episode of The Uncertain Hour. I first meet Joey on his 42nd day off
9: pain pills in Johnson City, Tennessee. Joey doesn't want me to come to his house. Instead, he asks me to meet him in the parking lot of a discount tobacco store nearby. He texts me a picture of his face, so I'll recognize him light brown hair, scruffy beard, black rimmed glasses, white t shirt. It's early on a Sunday morning, and there's no one around. Good morning. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm
2: tired.
9: Then we head to a park. Joey takes out a pack of Marlboros.
2: It's the one thing I splurge on. Like, I don't, know. I don't smoke cheap cigarettes. <laughs> Thank God.
9: Joey grew up in Wise County, Virginia. The poverty rate is well above the national average at 23%. The main industries are healthcare, retail, and mining. And it was one of the first places to witness the fallout of OxyContin. In a six year span, soon after OxyContin hit the market, drug overdose deaths in the region increased 300%. Joey had recently left Wise. Leaving was the only way he could get clean. He refers to his hometown as...
2: A speck on the map.
9: (laughs) What did kids do on the weekends or after school?
2: Right around Walmart. (laughs) That's about it. That or go get high. I mean, that's it. There's nothing else there to do. It just wasn't.
9: Joey says by 2001, when he was graduating from high school, pain pills were everywhere. He says he tried them a few times, but mostly preferred to smoke pot.
2: And then... I met a girl whose stepdad was an Oxy cotton dealer. I ended up marrying her. She was from Lee County.
9: Joey remembers this one moment in particular with his new father-in-law.
2: He did give us an, a couple 80s for our wedding, though. That was, that was nice of him. Wait, our, what? Our wedding gift was, was pills from him. <laughs> no joke. He gave me three or four 40s and like two 80s and a couple hundred bucks. Is what he gave us for our wedding.
9: 40s and 80s refers to the milligram strength of an OxyContin pill. It took Joey just one afternoon to learn something it took scientists and doctors and lab coats years to acknowledge: OxyContin was not less abusable. Do you remember the first time you tried it? Yeah. What was that like?
2: <laughs> uh, I got sick as can be. Like we had, uh, it was a 40 milligram, I think. And we split it, and we went to a place called the Rooster's Pub, which is in Pennington. And we'd ordered food, and I was fine, and I got, I mean, I was unbelievably high, like the highest I'd ever felt off of a pain pill. And went outside because I got hot, and I ended up throwing up. And it was, I mean, it was just, it blew my mind, like it was such a good high. And it's funny, though, you would think, oh, well, this is going to make me throw up, let's not take it. (laughs) Common sense. I bet probably the first 10 or 15 times I took Oxy or snorted Oxy, I threw up every time.
9: It wasn't long before pain pills took over Joey's life. He went from splitting 40 milligrams of OxyContin a few times a week to snorting 80 milligrams a day.
2: Like, I've explained it to people. Like, I could literally be driving to pay a bill and have no money but be out of drugs, and get a call from somebody that says, hey, I've got whatever. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, I really need to go pay the water bill. (laughs) Before I know it, I'm at my dealer's house buying drugs instead.
9: He kept crushing and snorting a mix of pain pills with his friends. He remembers this one guy in particular, a friend of his wife's.
2: We had just hung out with him. We dropped him off at uh, his friend's house. We left. And then the next morning, uh, she got a phone call, and he died. He was, like, 20, 21, like, right around my age. Had just had uh, one baby and had another one on the way.
9: What, I mean, was that, like, a major warning to you, or did it just seem like...
2: It just seemed like a regular day, as sad as that is. A- and, like, it makes you sound cold-hearted in a way, but, like... It was just, it got so regular there for a while, it's like, all right.
9: So did you continue to do OxyContin after that? Mm
2: Mm-hmm. We did an Oxy (laughs) that morning before we went to his funeral.
9: Fourteen years of Joey's life went by this way. He did manage to get clean a few times, but it didn't stick. And then one morning, Joey decided no more pain pills, and he began the slow, careful, and incredibly difficult process of weaning himself off of opioids.
2: You just kind of, kind of, finally wake up and go, "What the f- happened?" <laughs> you know, 30, 34 years old, Where the f- my life go.
0: That was Joey Ballard, one of the subjects interviewed for the latest episode of The Uncertain Hour. You can find rarely seen documents that help tell the story of the role regulations played in bringing OxyContin to the market. Just go to marketplace.org and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. busy week of news, a tax overhaul, net neutrality repeal, and a lot of talk about Bitcoin, otherwise known as a cryptocurrency. Earlier this week, its value rose to $15,000 per Bitcoin, and investors can now trade Bitcoin futures on the public market. But what do you need to know about Bitcoin? Marketplace tech host Molly Wood breaks it down into five things for us, starting with the basics. um, Just what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin.
4: Bitcoin is an encrypted digital currency. It's sometimes called a cryptocurrency, and it is a global payment system. It's built on top of this technology that's called blockchain. And that is essentially a virtual ledger that keeps track of every transaction. And the reason it's cool is that no one person or computer or entity controls Bitcoin. And the ledger itself, the blockchain ledger, is publicly distributed. So in theory, anyone can track these transactions to verify that they're real. And at the time of this recording, just as a side note, one Bitcoin is equivalent to 16532 U.S. dollars and 60 cents. On to point number two, who has Bitcoin? Right now, mostly speculators and investors have Bitcoin, and there are not very many of them. In fact, financial analysts estimate that only about a thousand people own 40% of all the Bitcoin in the world. It's a little hard to estimate how many people own Bitcoin. When you own it, it is essentially assigned to your digital Bitcoin address, which is really just like an encryption key. One person can have several addresses. So, again, it's hard to count. But, best guess is that between two and four million people own at least some fraction of a Bitcoin. And that number could be as high as 15 million people.
0: Let's move on to point
4: number three. Why is Bitcoin so volatile? That is basically the single enduring question of the entire Bitcoin story. One reason might be because so few people control so much of it. So any move by one of these Bitcoin whales, or maybe even a group of them, can have a huge impact on the supply and the price. It is also utterly unregulated and has no real infrastructure to speak of. Things might get more stable now that Bitcoin is trading on actual exchanges like the CME, But prior to that, you could have an entire Bitcoin exchange get hacked or go down overnight and lose the records of Bitcoin ownership and throw the market into complete chaos. And I should not leave out the very high likelihood of fraud and manipulation on some exchanges. Plus, then Bitcoin might get some bad press because it's used to pay off hackers and ransomware attacks and everyone might sell. Basically, Bitcoin is brand new, it is suddenly worth tons of money, and you should assume that anything and everything will happen.
0: Point number four, Bitcoin is a crypto or digital currency. So just how real is it? Bitcoin as a financial asset is
4: as real as people say it is. That's why it's worth so much right now. But as a cryptocurrency, it's real because there is a finite number of Bitcoin. There is a record of each one that is created or mined. And then there's this digital record of all the transactions in the blockchain. So actually, compared to something like a $100 bill, which has a serial number, we know it was created, but it can disappear for years after that and then show up all covered in powdered cocaine, compared to that, Bitcoin is pretty real. And
0: finally, point number five, what's the future of Bitcoin?
4: This is a good place to note that Bitcoin is not the only cryptocurrency that's built on blockchain technology, and it will not be the last. This technology lets all kinds of things happen. Uh, A common example is something called a smart contract or a self-executing contract between two parties. The blockchain can automate transactions. The easiest example would be to say if I used a cryptocurrency that runs on a network called Ethereum to pay for a package, then my side of the contract would communicate with, let's say, FedEx and their tracking system. And when and only when the package was delivered, it would trigger payment to the merchant. It can, of course, get way more complicated from there. But the future is really less about Bitcoin or any individual currency, and much more about this decentralized, computerized ledger technology that can potentially have a huge impact on all kinds of financial transactions. It doesn't require any middlemen, no gatekeepers, no fee takers. Just these computerized, traceable, verifiable transactions. This is sometimes actually called the Internet of Agreements. And so set aside any fear of missing out that you might have about not getting into Bitcoin earlier because there's a lot more to come.
0: There you have it. Five things you need to know about Bitcoin. And you can read more of this on our website, marketplace.org. And while you're there, check out our past five things on net neutrality. That'll help you understand what this week's Vote to Repeal It means for you. Again, all those details are at Marketplace.org. Right now, paying for rideshare with Bitcoin isn't an option. But there are changes taking place in the industry. Lyft has officially launched its first driverless vehicle pilot program in Boston. So call a car in Boston Seaport District and a self-driving vehicle could show up. Well, plus a driver to grab the wheel if you need that. But one of these days, there may be no driver. It'll just be us and technology. And that idea, using technology to get from point A to point B, could change the lives of millions of people without a single car ever hitting the road. The lives of people like Elizabeth Jameson. I'm a quadriplegic,
8: which means I'm... I can't use uh, anything to navigate a wheelchair by myself. I don't have the use of hands or arms, so I can't use the joystick to do anything with my power wheelchair. Driverless wheelchair technology could change her life.
0: Jameson developed multiple sclerosis in her early 30s and now can't use her limbs. She uses a wheelchair full time. You know, as the day goes on, my
8: voice gets better and better. I get really good around midnight. (laughs) My disease varies by the time of day. She
0: co-wrote a recent op-ed on Wired.com that asks companies to use self-driving technology for people in wheelchairs. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Do you remember the moment when you thought, oh my gosh, maybe... Self-driving technology could could actually help
8: me out, and, and then decided to write about it. I am now using a technology where I can operate wheelchair using my neck. I find it really hard, and I thought, you know, I've been reading about uh, automated pods that deliver pizza. It's going on right now in San Francisco. And I was thinking, pizza, God, I would like self-driving technology to get me around. And I was thinking, gee, maybe it's a missed opportunity for uh, people who are elderly and disabled.
0: In the essay you wrote for WIRED, you mentioned a couple of places, uh, notably MIT and CyberWorks that then are working on self-driving wheelchairs. Uh, What are the biggest barriers that you see as a consumer uh, for you to get one and for other people who might want one to get one?
8: Barriers, money, companies, the money, I just want to encourage the tech industry, to not forget the growing number of people who are elderly and disabled.
0: When we have these conversations about self-driving cars, you know, we have seen some mishaps. Uh, People are worried about the technology. Does that worry you when you think about the potential for an autonomous wheelchair?
8: I don't worry about that because all these prototypes have to go through FDA approval. That means clinical trials involving safety. So I don't worry about that. We're talking about maybe two miles an hour at the most. I'm stuck and I would love to have the freedom to move I think
0: people will listen to this and perhaps not understand the difference between a power wheelchair, which is what you use and and what many people in America use, and what an autonomous wheelchair would provide. What really for you are sort of the key differences?
8: A power wheelchair is battery operated and you need someone to operate it. And if you're a quadriplegic, I can't access it because I don't have the use of my hands. I sit in this wonderful wheelchair, but I can't go anywhere with the wheelchair. An autonomous wheelchair means I could go places within my house and hopefully my dream world, I can go down the street and get a cup of coffee. If if investors are willing to put money into developing other prototypes, we can hopefully limit the cost so that we're not buying new wheelchairs. We're investing in technology, which will be attached to current wheelchairs. And then in the future, we could go to the Starbucks or the local coffee shop right now. I'm not looking for that. I want to go to my kitchen and see my husband
0: at dinner. Elizabeth Jameson, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Are you living with a disease or a disability? What's the top thing you spend money on that people might not know? We'd love for you to share your story with us. You can email weekend at marketplace.org or call our voicemail 1-800-648-5114. A week is a long time in politics, and certainly for British Prime Minister Theresa May. In a matter of days, she's gone from victory to defeat as she navigates Britain's exit from the European Union. Oh no, it is far from over. For an update, we're going to check in with Marketplace's European Bureau Chief Stephen Beard. Welcome, Stephen. Hello, Lizzie you know it's been almost a year and a half since the brexit vote there's more than a year to go before the sort of titular leaving date um what in the world is going on why is this proving to be such a slog it's uh,
10: disentangling the UK uh, from an organisation that it's belonged to for more than four decades is is no easy matter. Uh, there's a lot at stake economically. I mean, if the UK were to leave the EU without a deal, the bloc is... The UK's largest export market, 44% of uh, UK exports go there. And if it wants to keep open uh, access to that market, free, unfettered, frictionless trade, uh, as it calls it, uh, the UK is going to have to surrender some of the control over its own affairs that it would be getting back after Brexit. But the Brexiters say, this is about freedom, about independence, about sovereignty. And uh, it, it's about freeing the country from foreign control. Uh, so this is – it's a bitterly contentious subject, especially uh, in the ruling Conservative Party but uh, also in the opposition Labour Party too.
0: Well, you know where are we now? There are a few things that have sort of been stipulated. There is this $52 billion exit fee uh, so far keeping the border open between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic – and then sort of Britain has agreed to uphold the rights of the three million EU nationals who, who live in Britain. So those are a few things that are on, you know, kind of on the list. But what, what is next? What are the other things that are coming up in this next round of negotiations?
10: Right. Well, according to uh, the head of the European Commission, that first stage, which was an absolute agony uh, to overcome, was the easy part. Um, I mean, what comes next are talks about the so-called transition agreement so that after the official departure date, that's the end of March uh, 2019, uh, the UK would be able to stay on as uh, an EU member state in all but name for a period of two years. Um, This is so that businesses here uh, have time to adjust. They don't fall off a cliff. Talks then between the EU and Britain on the future relationship after Brexit, the trade and security relationship, will start next March. That's March 2018.
0: Do we have any idea of what the UK government wants that relationship to be?
10: Not exactly, no. Uh, There are so many divisions in the Conservative Party, uh, and indeed in the Cabinet too, that uh, uh, Prime Minister May has avoided any discussion of this so far. There's been talk, however, of uh, Canada plus, or uh, the optimists say Canada plus, plus, plus. That's the same kind of trade deal that Canada recently agreed uh, with the EU, plus services which were not covered in that deal with Canada. So this would uh, potentially guarantee full access to the EU for Britain's all-important financial services. Whether the UK will be able to get Canada Plus uh, without handing back a lot of control to the EU is another matter. I mean, the French, as we know, would very much like to get a large chunk of that financial services business from London, so they're likely to be pushing the EU to drive a particularly hard bargain.
0: Well, who has the power? I mean, it, it seems as if the EU has all of it here. D- does the UK have any cards to play?
10: Uh, certainly the EU has a stronger hand. I mean, this, Lizzie, let's not forget, is 27 against 1. Uh, mm-hmm. They do have the Brits over a barrel to an extent, and they don't want the Brits to get a sweet deal uh, which might encourage other member states to head for the exit. Having said that, the EU doesn't want to see the UK crash out of the EU without a deal uh, because it would damage uh, a very important market for the EU. The UK is one of its best export markets. Uh, 20% uh, of German auto exports uh, come to the UK And a disorderly Brexit would be very disruptive for the EU, which has got plenty of other problems on on its plate.
0: Marketplace's European Bureau Chief Stephen Beard, thank you very much.
10: Thank you, Lizzie.
0: Before we end the show today, some of your comments on our supply and demand story.
8: Hi, baby. Who's a big baby? Look at you. Oh, yes, you did a mess in there. Hold on. You're soaked, girly. We explored
0: what the dog rescue industry, moving dogs from the rural South to the Northeast, could teach us. And you had plenty to say, plus pictures of your puppies to share, which we loved. Erica Yerkes from Boston wrote us on Facebook. It teaches us that we have a failed system, lack of education, and prolific poverty in this country. Instead of investing pennies for spay and neuter, we paid dollars to fill and staff shelters. Mary Colleen Knapp from Winchester, Virginia, added, to brand it as supply and demand suggests that rescues in the North rely upon those in the South to supply product. I can't speak for the organizations I support, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't break their hearts if the output significantly decreased. We also talked abandoned 401ks.
2: The 401k plan was so easy to leave behind because you didn't actively put money into it. It was done for you.
0: Murmur Lynn wrote on Facebook, If your old employer no longer exists, you will have to fight the investment firm to release your money. Department of Labor was incredibly helpful. You can share your thoughts on anything you hear on this show. We read all your comments. Just go to Marketplace.org. You can email us. We're weekend at Marketplace.org. Or tweet us. We're at Marketplace WKND. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and with help this week from Sean McHenry. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Drew Jostad is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.